Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 357th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. Dr. Tracy is going to talk to us about the topic of treason, medieval, and modern adultery, betrayal, and shame. The history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Danarin. And today we're going to be talking about treason, medieval and early modern adultery, betrayal, and shame with Kat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. Kat, what got you interested in this topic? That's a very good question, and I'm delighted to be back. Thank you guys for having me. Um, This issue came up in 2015 when I was doing some research on medieval punishment and medieval torture. And there were a couple instances where, in discussions about how medieval punishment and torture plays into the modern world, people were turning to Game of Thrones. And, of course, Game of Thrones has an awful lot of treason, an awful lot of betrayal, an awful lot of adultery. And there were a couple of moments in my own life where... I was on the back end of being cheated on. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to do a book on this. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I decided to start looking into the issues of treason and how that played into medieval literature, law, and textual representation. And once I started the research, I put out a call for papers and had a huge response from a number of my colleagues across the discipline. And... As we began this work, of course, then we got into the 2016 election cycle. As a consequence, treason came up an awful lot. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a a topic that people just feel so comfortable with. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Along with this topic here, I mean, uh, it is remarkably interesting how you decided to choose this topic. Where where was your starting point? I mean, um, and this is the guy who always asks people uh, in a synopsis. Oh, I decided to start this. Where did you say this is my step one? Um, well, at the risk of sounding a little personal, as I said, my relationship of fourteen years ended because my partner was unfaithful. And well, I meant, I I meant thinking, in the history perspective. I meant in, in medieval oh, no. history. Where did you start? Yeah. Well, this is the thing, is that so once that happened, I started looking into it specifically in medieval context. And, you know, success is the best revenge. (laughs) So I I started looking at the laws of the 14th century, because treason as a concept really has an amorphous form earlier than that. You start to see a development and a codification of treason as a legal premise in the 13th century and the 14th century when the kings are consolidating their power and the, the nation state is really starting to evolve. So I wrote on questions of national identity in a number of my works, starting with tor- torture and brutality in medieval literature back in 2012. And the concept of national identity 
starts in the 12th century. Even though you see traces of it earlier, it really picks up speed in the 12th century. Well, the stronger sense each of these nations have of themselves as a people, as a national entity, the stronger that sense that the state is embodied by the ruler. And when that happens, you end up with laws governing treason. And the treason laws really start picking up in the medieval legal context around the 13th and 14th century. All right. So concept of treason law, the, the, the stereotype, at least, is that treason is an almost exclusively noble preoccupation. Peasants can't commit treason; they're just not capable of doing enough damage. Um, and therefore, and therefore, the, in terms of the legal system, you're talking about things like star chambers and so forth, rather than normal court systems. Are those stereotypes correct? Is that the way the law actually looks, or is their concept of treason a little closer to a modern version? That's a stereotype. Um, The idea that peasants couldn't be guilty of treason entirely depends on where you're talking about. Like most things, including certain punishments, including certain legal uses of torture, not every principality in Europe had the same laws regarding treason. But treason essentially was any act that was a betrayal of the state, which was the monarch. And so because the state was embodied by the monarchy and the court, but pretty much the monarchy, anybody who acted against the state, no matter how big or how small, could be branded a traitor. And the definition of treason starts to vary as the legal systems get more sophisticated. And as you get into the 14th century, the the base of the crimes for which that can be considered treason start to broaden out, and you end up with an awful lot more things that can be considered treason. Uh, well, okay. so the obvious follow-up is give us a laundry list, or, or at least a, a, top, a, a letterman list, maybe, of things that would be treasonable. Well, um, certain things, like rebelling against your king, violating your oath, um, those were automatically considered treason. If you took an oath in law, it could be considered a case of petty treason. Now, in English law, you have the Kremen Majesties, which is a high crime against the state, almost like a high crime and misdemeanor. And then you have the petty treason, so the petite treason, the smaller crimes, that are still considered a form of treason, but they weren't against the state. In the 16th century, that meant things like a wife who tries to kill her husband or kills her husband. That's considered a petty treason. Um, In certain cases, depending on the status of the individual, adultery could be considered treason, either petty treason if it's a wife against her husband, or actual high treason if it's a wife against her husband, but the wife is queen and the husband is king. And you end up with a whole bunch of different things, like anybody who interferes with the royal family could be guilty of treason. Now, interferes with is a broad term. Um, The actual phrase from the 1357 Statute of Treason is violate. Um, That means anybody who commits adultery with the queen is guilty of treason. Anybody who violates a daughter of the king is guilty of treason. Anybody who interferes with the working of the monarchy is guilty of treason. So there are a whole range of possibilities in the 14th century for treason. 
are is it mostly people who are among the nobility who might commit those crimes? Yes, most peasants didn't necessarily care. But then in 1381, you have the Peasants' Revolt, which is actually not a revolt of just the peasantry, but of the merchant classes and some of the, the upper middle class people in London, and they rebel against King Richard II. And he's only a young man. I mean, he became king at age 10 in 1377. So he's only a teenager when he has to go out and quell this mob riot that had burned down the Savoy, which is the castle of John of Gaunt in London. But all of those people were at risk of being branded traitors. Now, most of them were not, and the rebellion was put down, but any among the ringleaders would have been branded traitors and would have been tried for treason. Okay. Um, Back to what you were talking before about how the development of the national state instead of like city-states or kingdoms um, is there a, a big jump here as in, and maybe my question is too vast, but w- when it was a smaller kingdom or smaller state, was their definition of treason different or is it just a con- uh, pretty much the same? And when it went to the national state, it was like 2.0. It's, it's pretty much the same. It's just when it goes to the national level, it becomes 2.0. Um, when you have individual kingdoms and you have in, in for instance, in the, early 13th century, where you have small kingdoms like Navarre in north of Spain, southern France, or um, Anjou, or certain principalities that are not part of a larger consolidated state, people could still commit treason against their lord. And if they'd sworn an oath to that lord, and then they violated the oath, that was the act of treason. A lot of this in the early Middle Ages and like I said, up to about the 13th century, becomes a question of violating your oath. And once the power starts being consolidated, once you start, particularly France, only consolidates its actual holdings um, and what we now consider modern-day France, that only becomes all of France in the 15th and 16th century. And before that, a lot of that land belonged to the King of England, but he actually was a vassal to the King of France for his lands in France. And so, in some cases, if the English king used his lands in France to rebel against the king of France, which happened through the entire Hundred Years' War, <laughs> right. that right. could be considered an act of treason, and sometimes was discussed as an act of treason. But because you had buying royal houses and buying royalty on both sides of that, it was a lot murkier. But if you have, for something like the Wars of the Roses in the 14th century, particularly the escalating violence between um, Henry VI and Edward, Duke of York, who becomes Edward IV when he deposes Henry VI, that was often put in terms of treason. However, a lot of legal minds at the time said that if a king was a bad king, if a king didn't rule effectively, then it was the duty of his subjects to rebel against him. And then one man's traitor becomes another man's freedom fighter. Right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy... In moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. 
Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Larissa Fat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, and she is talking about her book, Treason, Medieval and Early Modern Adultery, Betrayal and Shame. Our history buff is Brett Menard. And Brett, being that you're an expert on um, adultery, betrayal, and shame, you get the first question. (laughs) Thanks, John. Kat, you've talked uh, so far mostly about legal history, but you're a professor of literature. How does uh, how do topics like treason and betrayal show up in the literature of uh, medieval Europe? Have you ever read anything about King Arthur? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the question I was going towards. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I mean that's probably one of the most. Uh, the most famous examples and probably one of the most diverse because there's so much Arthuriana from the 12th century through the 15th century with Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. And Mallory wrote his culminating medieval version of Arthuriana in the middle of the Wars of the Roses. So he is imprisoned, as far as we know, in 1471 um, as the tide turns and finally Edward IV defeats Henry VI. And by tradition, Henry VI is murdered at prayer in the Tower of London, as you do. Because um, if you're going to depose the king, make sure you kill him, because if not, he's going to come back. And that happened a couple times. But in this particular instance, Mallory himself was imprisoned for switching sides. And so his version of the Arthurian literature that deals with Lancelot and Guinevere and Mordred and that betrayal really takes a an interesting view of the treason. But earlier versions, like the 14th century Stanzaic Mort d'Arthur, which might have been, well, is one of Mallory's English sources, that version of the text focuses on Lancelot and Guinevere, but is less sympathetic to them as lovers, and really emphasizes the aspect of treason. And, of course, with Mordred, who is the one who finally overthrows his uncle, Bosch's father, depending on the version, that is always couched as treason. And so, depending on the text, you know, Mallory tries to mitigate the treason between Lancelot and Guinevere and cast their affair as true love and, and romance. But the treason of Mordred is really the primary focus for Mallory. And that treason is seen as the gravest possible crime. In the Stanzaic, both Lancelot and Guinevere are guilty of treason. So is Mordred, because any betrayal of the king is a betrayal of the country, and that's treason. All right. Um, so that's obviously the 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 easiest. Are there other literary um, canons in the Middle Ages where 
where betrayal and and treason is part of that uh is a, a major part of the theme uh, well, there's an awful lot of courtly romance that deals with issues of adultery as treason and as betrayal. There's a whole section of literature that deals with, you know, chastity tests. One is called the court mantel or the short mantle, where various ladies of the court, and sometimes it's Arthur's court as well, though it's not specifically Lancelot, Guinevere, Arthur. But in those stories, a magical um, scarf or mantle is presented to each lady to show how honest or true they are. And if it's short, then they are not honest, loyal, and true. And depending on what part of them it covers, it kind of reveals their treason through its magical properties. And the truest lady, of course, is completely covered by the mantle. Um, So you have a lot of those tropes. There are also different different aspects of treason in a lot of literary sources where you simply talk about betrayal. And some cases, if you're talking about nobility, then it is put in terms of, of royal treason. Think back to um, the Song of Roland, where Ganelon is cast as a traitor for having betrayed Roland. Well, arguably, Roland betrayed him first. But the terminology makes it very clear that Ganelon has committed treason. And so you see a lot of texts like that, where anybody who acts against the royal hero, who is royal, it's put in terms of treason. And there's a whole bodies of literature like that. Um, even the Robin Hood legends of the 15th century talk about Robin Hood's loyalty as one to the king, not to his corrupt sheriff or his corrupt ecclesiastic. But they call him a traitor, even though he technically is not. Interesting. Okay. Um, to take this in a different perspective, what about... Um, the church. I mean, of course, you have individuals there that have definitely fallen to this category. Uh, are they held to the same standards? I mean, I know that the church is kind of its separate identity, and we talked about it on the show last week. Um, it definitely has a lot of stereotypes and myths that are bogus, but um, are there, there are stories where you have bishops, cardinals, or priests being fallen under this category? Treason is specifically a a secular political designation. If you betray the church, it's heresy. So if the church was going to essentially act against somebody they thought as treacherous to the church, then they would brand them as heretics. That's what happens to the Knights Templar in 1307, uh, the French Knights Templar. And so when they are arrested by the secular authority, they've been accused of heresy rather than treason, because according to Philip the Fair and Pope Clement V, their act was a treason against the church, and that's what the charge of heresy essentially was. Okay, but but Kat, don't we have instances where there are certainly power struggles oh. taking place um, between the church and these emerging um, national monarchs um, that that fall in that category? I mean, I'm, we're getting out of the medieval time period, but certainly you could argue that there was some of that going on with Henry VIII, and, and uh, so, so how, how, does, how does that, because you're talking about two different sets, two co-equal institutions with their own, each with their own legal system, how does right. that intersect and, and interact with each other? Well, since treason was a crime against the state, and the state was the king, not the church, then Generally speaking, if you again, if you in the case of Henry VIII, he declares himself the head of the church in England. 
he makes himself the ultimate authority. Now, the church disagreed with that, but Henry didn't honestly care. And in fact, when it came down to it, the church excommunicated Elizabeth, and the church would excommunicate, I think that Henry said, I'm out of here, and the church said, we don't want you anyway. Wait, we hang on a second. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> you would essentially have this this sense of, well, we're going to excommunicate you. Um, in the case of Queen Elizabeth, um, the Pope issued a papal bull that made her fair game for anybody who wanted to assassinate her. and But they defined her as a heretic. Whereas Elizabeth specifically made a point that anybody who was Catholic who participated in a rebellion against her or her crown, particularly the Jesuit mission that came to England specifically with this mission supposedly to return England to Catholicism and assassinate Elizabeth, she, when she caught those people and her authorities did in fact employ torture to get confessions from them, she charged them with the political crime of treason. That was the difference. She said, I'm charging you with treason for a political act against the state, whereas the church would have charged them with heresy and would have excommunicated them. So that's really where you get your difference. Heresy is seen as a religious betrayal. Treason is seen as a political one. Right. You got a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are there also examples... uh, of how, or pardon me, let me start over with my question. How do views change throughout the Middle Ages? I'm thinking of um, things like Tristan and Isolt, where, well, there's there's some betrayal there, but it's, it's caused by magic, so they aren't really to be held to account. Well, that depends on <laughs> the story, because um, King Mark certainly thinks it's treason, and he he, you know, basically buries an axe in Tristan's head um, as, as an act of treason and as an act of betrayal. Now, of course, in that circumstance, it depends on which version of the text you're talking about. Later versions from the 13th and 14th century put that sexual betrayal, that adultery, even through magic, in terms of treason, because that's how the legal society had coalesced by the 13th and 14th century. Earlier versions talk about it as a betrayal and talk about it as, well, there's magic involved, so can they be held responsible? It entirely depends on which text you're talking about. Okay, I have to ask the question. Okay, define magic involved. I mean, okay, I know I'm thinking this from a modern perspective. What was their definition of magic involved? Oh, she drank a magic potion um, that was intended. Oh. She, she was given a magic potion. She was basically married off to King Mark without ever having met him. And she was given a magic potion that she was meant to take when she married him or when she met him so that she would fall in love with him and he with her. And the story goes, depending on the version again, but on, Tristan is sent to fetch her from Ireland. And when they're on the ship, they are given the potion some in some versions it's inadvertently in some versions it's on purpose by her maid who gives it to them so they fall in love and that's the magical intervention okay yeah it's it's okay john i will send you a copy so that you can catch up on your medieval literature <laughs> well i know i'm not talking about the literature but i must admit we're talking about part of it and when i get that but when you're we're talking about actual charges being brought against someone, 
uh, in the true braces uh, on the basis of what they consider law. And then I understand you have the literature blend of magical potions, but to get nailed for treason on a magical potion, which in the real world had a hard consequence, I just kind of chuckled. So yeah, well, and and, and in, if you say, if you think about it in the literature, the Tristan and the Zolda, the hard consequence is that Mark kills his nephew. There's no right. trial for treason. There's none of that. But in the Arthurian tradition with Lancelot and Guinevere, she is about to, in the Sendite Mort Arthur and in Mallory, she's going to be burned at the stake for adultery. There's a trial and she's going to be burned at the stake. They have, they actually follow the legal process. And Lancelot rescues her from the stake and a civil war erupts because of it. Arthur has to go deal with it and try and get his wife back and then while he's gone, his nephew steals his throne. So you have two levels of treason there, but they actually follow the legal language of both the 14th and 15th centuries. The Tristan and the Zolda story is murkier because it's magic, but then it leads to murder. Right. Um, Kat, before we, we finish this segment, we do need to talk about that other phrase that you use, shame. So yes. how does shame fall into this, and, and how does it relate back and forth between these other issues? Well, because one of the most common, I guess, legal uh, pieces of evidence that could be used against somebody was their reputation. And if you had somebody of good repute, and they were accused of a crime, if they were accused of treason, if they were accused of adultery, their reputation could actually be used as evidence in their favor, or it could be used in evidence against them. If you, if somebody commits treason and it's proven, their reputation is attainted. They are shamed. And as a consequence, anybody who was convicted of treason, for instance, their children could not inherit any of their property because they now it's a burden of shame that passes on to the next generation. And in fact, the American constitutional law regarding treason specifically addresses that and specifically says, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to remove the um, property rights from the, the children of people who are con convicted of treason. And in fact, our treason laws in the U.S. Constitution are based on the 1357 Great Statute of Treasons in England. But shame is part of the whole idea of making somebody who has committed treason a public anathema, you know, publicly shaming them. Now, that happens in cases of adultery, too, where you simply have adultery that's not treason. And actually, one of the best examples of actual legal process for that is the final episode of Season 5 of Game of Thrones, when Cersei has to do her walk of shame through King's, uh, King's Landing, that's actually from a 13th century statute called the Costumagen, which is that that was the punishment for regular standard adultery, was walking naked in public. It was supposed to be the man and woman. If they got caught, they had to be caught in flagrante delecto by two judges. So you, you had to make sure that not only did you catch your spouse cheating, but you had to catch them and have two judges with you. And then you had to bind them both. But if the guy got away, he could go. And the woman was forced to do the walk by herself. But if he didn't get away, they would be bound back to back naked and forced to walk through town while people threw things at them, uh, made a lot of noise, shouted insults at them. And they had to basically 
give this public penance and shame, and then that stuck to them forever. That was part of the reputation from then on. So that's how the idea of shame plays into the issues of both betrayal, adultery, and treason. All right. Well, Um, when we come back, we'd like to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant, and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 357th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappel. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, who talked to us about her book, Treason, Medieval and Early Modern Adultery, Betrayal, and Shame. The history buff for today's show was Brett Menard, this is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Kula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.